Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Tom. For those of you who don't know, welcome to those of you who have joined us online as well. Thanks for being here with us today. And I want to start with a little story about my own life. It's not that exciting or anything. It's just a reality story. And it uh, has to do with my teeth. Okay, so I had my wisdom teeth out when I was 19 years old. So that was before the internet. And yes, there was a world before the internet and before cell phones. And then I did not see a dentist or have dental work done for 37 years. And uh, this was not because of fear of the dentist. We just didn't have a health benefits plan as a family. So we would have to pay for our regular dental visits. And if our teeth didn't hurt, then we didn't go to the dentist. Well, my teeth didn't hurt for 37 years. And I talked with a dentist about this, like, is there something wrong with me? And he said, maybe you just have the type of teeth that are not sensitive or something. But then uh, two years ago, one of my teeth began to hurt. And it was so bad that um, I would try and eat out of this side of my mouth. And if the slightest bit of water went to that place where the tooth, tooth hurt, I just had this piercing pain through my jaw that would go through my jaw. Well, it was time to see the dentist. And uh, after examination, he told me my tooth had cracked from the very top to the very bottom and the tooth would have to come out. So, consequences of not visiting the dentist. And then I went to get my tooth pulled. And I can't remember at all, like they froze my mouth and jaw and all that. And I seem to remember him standing on my shoulders with a pair of pliers trying to pull out my tooth, something like that. And after it finally came out and the bleeding stopped, the pain was gone from my tooth. So I was thankful for the dentist who I didn't think I needed. And sometimes we can live like we don't need God. And we go along in life thinking that we're going to just accomplish everything we want to accomplish. There's going to be no problems, no barriers, nothing will stop us. And then some tough situation enters into our lives and, and we don't know what to do. And we can't figure out how to solve it. And we search and we hope and we look for help. And God is there. God is there with what we need, though we thought we didn't need it. And today we're going to talk about a piece of God's heart that we may think we don't need. But hopefully many of us have already experienced the blessing of this piece of God's heart in our lives. And I pray that if you have already experienced this from God, by the end of our time together today, you will have even more and greater appreciation for it. And if you haven't yet experienced this from God, I pray that you will experience it, maybe by the time we end today. So this piece of God's heart is found in the New Testament letter of Ephesians, chapter 2. It's on page 8. Uh, 29 in the Bibles in front of you or underneath you if you're in the front row on the balcony there. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're just going to look at verses 1 to 7, and this is the Apostle Paul, and he is writing to the Ephesians, and we're just going to look at verses 1 to 7. So Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 7, and this is what Paul writes. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we're going to start in verse 4 today, which describes the character and the heart of God. And it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. And that is the main point of this entire passage. God made us alive together with Christ. Everything that comes before leads up to that main point, and everything that comes after flows from that main point. That's the central point, but verse 4 explains why God did this. And it talks about God's mercy and God's love. But notice the qualifier on God's mercy. But God, being rich in mercy being rich in mercy. And Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, states, nowhere else in the Bible is God described as rich in anything. The only thing he is rich in is in mercy. And then Ortland quotes this pastor from the 1600s named Thomas Goodwin, who by the end of his life had compiled 12 volumes of his works his messages and his sermons, 12 volumes, each 500 pages in length. And volume two is devoted completely to Ephesians 2. 500 pages on Ephesians 2, and he spends several messages talking about Ephesians 2, verse 4, and the rich mercy of God. And Goodwin writes, God is the spring of all mercy. It is natural to him. It is his nature and disposition. Because when he shows mercy, he does it with his whole heart. And Ortland writes, God, by his very nature, is rich in mercy. He is not becoming rich in mercy. He is not growing in mercy. He is rich in mercy. So this statement takes us into the inner heart of our creator, disclosing to us the very center of God's being and nature. So what is mercy? Well, there's a couple of kinds, two, two kinds at least. Mercy can mean compassionate treatment of one in distress. So giving water and food and shelter to refugees like in Ukraine is compassionate mercy. But the other kind of mercy also contains compassion, but for a different reason. This is mercy that is compassionate or kindly forbearance shown toward an offender 
or an enemy or other person in one's power. And it can also refer to the power of a judge to pardon or ease the punishment of one convicted. And it is this pardoning mercy in verse 4 that we see that God is rich in. And that's the feature of God's heart we're looking at this week. So what is God's heart for us? That's the question we've asked every week in this series. God has a heart that is rich in mercy towards us. And God is rich in pardoning mercy towards us. But that immediately raises a question. Why would we need God's pardoning mercy? We all appreciate compassionate mercy when we are in distress. If someone brings us a meal or shovels our driveway or shows sympathy to us when we're bereaved, we love compassionate mercy. We want that kind of mercy, but why would we need pardoning mercy? That implies we've done something wrong. And most of us are pretty good citizens. Maybe the really bad people in our world need pardoning mercy. Maybe there's two categories of people. Category one is the really bad people, like the criminal offenders and dictators and very mean people and drug dealers and human traffickers. And sometimes we will put in the category of really bad people, people who disagree with us, maybe politically, maybe about vaccines or mandates. Oh, they're the really bad people, whatever our position is. But then the rest of us are the good people, and we don't really need God's pardoning mercy because we don't do things wrong. We're, we're good citizens. We, we work. We respect others. We pay our library fines. We clean up our yards. We offer a friendly wave to our neighbors. We are good people. So we need God's compassionate mercy when we're in distress, but not God's pardoning mercy. But this passage does not agree with the division of humanity into two categories, those who need God's pardoning mercy and those who don't need God's pardoning mercy. Verses 1 to 3 describe the spiritual condition of everyone apart from Christ. And these verses claim we all need God's pardoning mercy. Well, why? Why would we need God's pardoning mercy? First reason because we were spiritual zombies. Spiritual zombies. Verse 1 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So notice there, death, and notice walking. Dead people walking. The walking dead. Well, what does dead mean? We're alive. We've never died. He can't be referring to physical death because we still have physical life. So he must be talking about a different kind of death. And this is spiritual death with respect to God. We are dead in responsiveness to God. So a dead body cannot respond to stimulus like light or sound, taste or pain, and a spiritually dead person does not respond to God. He has, or she has no ability to please God. Spiritually dead people are lifeless and motionless as far as any Godward activity is concerned. 
And we also gain further insight into this when we consider the author's perspective. So the author is Paul. And he is living a spiritually alive life. He has been raised to this new life in Christ. So if he were to look back on his old life, how else would he describe it? If he's been raised to new life before Christ, he must have been dead in some way. And that's what he's talking about here, to help us see our desperate state. Ortland writes, Christ was sent into the world not to mend wounded people, or wake sleepy people, or advise confused people, or inspire bored people, or spur on lazy people, or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. But this still may confuse us. How can we be dead when we're physically alive? And this is where the zombie image actually helps. You've probably heard about the walking dead or zombies or seen them in literature or films. They are gruesomely portrayed as people who have come out of a grave, half decayed, who stumble around and walk slowly. So they are more dead than alive and they walk about in a daze and try to kill people who are fully alive. So think of the walking dead who live though they are dead. And Paul goes on to describe how a spiritually dead person lives. So how does a spiritually dead person live? First of all, we, because we were all once spiritually dead, we followed the course of the world. We followed the course of the world. Verse 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. Well, what is the world? It's not the planet Earth in this context. It is the way of the world apart from God. It is a whole social value system which is alien to God. It is the world's evil way apart from God. Or here's the best definition I've come across recently from author and pastor John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies. So here it is. It's a full one. But the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and institutionalized in a culture that is corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. So, think about that for a moment. The world is a system, and it has ideas, practices, and morals, values, and social norms, and they are in the mainstream, and they are institutionalized in a culture that is corrupted by the two twin sins of rebellion against God and redefinition of good and evil. And that means that we are exposed to the world whenever we walk out our front door, whenever we turn on our phones, or watch something on TV, or go on our computers. We enter the world when we walk down the mall, when we watch entertainment, when we go to school, when we go to our workplace, when we listen to the news or the media, we are in the world. And we face the temptation to follow the ways of the world. And if you are a spiritually dead person, you naturally follow the world's ways. They seem normal. 
So that's one way a spiritually dead person lives by following the course of the world. How else does a spiritually dead person live? Secondly, we followed the prince of the power of the air. So that's the latter part of verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is this? The devil. This is the devil. And most people would immediately scoff at this, that we followed the devil. Because either they don't believe in the devil, or secondly, they have not actively pursued following the devil. They, don't, they aren't devil worshippers. They haven't become Satanists. So how can we follow the devil? Well, following the devil does not mean devil worship. The devil is not stupid. He loves it when he gets portrayed as this guy in a tight red suit with a forked tail and horns on his head. Because he's so easily dismissed then as a myth. And we are people who live in a modern, sophisticated age with so much more knowledge than those unenlightened people from the past. And if we think that the devil does not exist, the devil has already won a significant battle against us. He has succeeded in convincing many people that he does not exist, and then he goes about subtly and slyly working. And Comer points out a summary of Jesus' teaching on the devil. Three main points. One, the devil is a real, intelligent, spiritual being, Jesus taught. So not just an idea, a real, intelligent, spiritual being. Two, Jesus taught the devil's end goal is to spread ruin in our souls and in our society. And three, Jesus taught that the devil's primary strategy is lies. Like in John 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. This is Jesus talking. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the devil doesn't try to deceive us with an obvious lie. Oh, you see that wall over there that's blue? It's actually yellow. No, like we're going to see right through that. But how about this one? True freedom is found by ignoring God's boundaries and ignoring nature's boundaries. And, and we hear that and we think, hmm, freedom. Who doesn't want freedom? Why is God limiting me by setting boundaries over my life? I wonder what life would be like outside of God's boundaries. Or... I wonder what life would be like outside of nature's boundaries. If I tried to go beyond nature, beyond these artificial boundaries of nature. Well, if you try to go against nature's boundary of gravity, you will soon find out that that's a pretty solid boundary that you can't break if you try to fly off a five-story building. Gravity will impose its law upon you. But... What if we say, you know what, I am going to go beyond my biological natural boundaries and explore what that could be like. 
I'm going to identify as someone different than my biological nature. That must be good because it means freedom. And I'll get affirmation and I will be celebrated. That's good. And, and people who are spiritually dead make these decisions thinking that they are good and good for them. But it's based on a lie. And remember, the devil's end goal is to destroy souls, to ruin society. So such thinking and decisions involve following the lies of the prince of the air without even knowing it sometimes. Or how about this one? Viewing porn doesn't hurt anyone. You're not being unfaithful to your spouse. You're just having a little fun and relief and it's better than going down to a bar and meeting someone. Except that Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart and I have never once heard a spouse who discovered their partner was involved in porn say, that's, that's so great. Our relationship is just going to, you know, progress. No. It's usually deep hurt and feelings of betrayal and broken trust and hardship, all because of a lie. So spiritually dead people, of whom we all once were, follow the course of the world, follow the prince of the air and his lies, and we also all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what is the flesh? Well, Comer defines it like this. The flesh is our base, primal, animalistic drives for self-gratification, especially as it pertains to sensuality and survival. Another defines the flesh as the longings and impulses of the self-centered life. And Ortland notes the phrase, we lived in the passions of our flesh. We lived there. We didn't just occasionally slip into the pa passions of our flesh. We lived in those passions, and it was the air we breathed. Beneath our smiles at the grocery store and cheerful greetings to the mailman, we, he writes, we quietly enthroned self and deprived our souls of the beauty, dignity, and worship for which they were made. Sin was not something we lapsed into. It defined our moment-by-moment -moment existence at the level of deed, word, and thought. So think for a moment about the power of this unholy trinity. You've got the devil whose primary strategy is lies. You've got our flesh that desires to be fulfilled outside of God's boundaries. You've got a world that institutionalizes and makes mainstream that which is rebellious to God and redefines right and wrong. So the devil plants a lie. Our flesh is desirous of obeying or following that lie to fulfill its desires and we are affirmed in a world that makes this institutionalized rebellion against God seem normal. And this is Comer's thesis in his book, Live No Lies. 
And when this happens, you have an entire society of walking dead people. And most people think living like this is normal. They encourage one another to continue this life, which is actually a walking dead life. And Paul says, we were all dead like this. But there, there might be some of us who still kind of chafe at that, especially if, when it comes to rules. Here's another way to look at humanity. What's your attitude towards rules? And there's usually two types of people, rule breakers and rule keepers. Which one are you? And the rule breakers would probably be the people, oh yeah, they would give in to their fleshly desires and all that. They would break the rules. They would go beyond God's boundaries, you know. So they probably also need God's pardoning mercy. But the rule keepers, no. The moral people, no. No. We don't, we don't need God's pardoning mercy. Except the guy who wrote this passage, Paul, was the ultimate rule keeper he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees that means he was like the highest of the strictest sect of Judaism he would be in the 99th percentile of rule keeping and he says in verse 3 among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh and that means friends that it is possible to live among the passions of your flesh, if you are a rule breaker and if you are a rule keeper. Rule keepers can also believe lies. Like, you're way superior to rule breakers. Rule keepers often spend a great deal of time correcting rule breakers for what they're doing wrong. Meanwhile, becoming blind to their own lostness and pride. And remember that devastating verse in John 8, 44, where Jesus says, you're following your father, the devil. That was to a group of rule keepers who were lost. So by the end of verse 3, no one gets a pass. We were all spiritually dead, walking in our trespasses and sins. We followed the course of the world. We believed the devil's lies. We gave in to our fleshly cravings and satisfied them in ways outside of God's boundaries and we couldn't raise ourselves from this spiritual death. And that is the bad news in three verses. And there's so much more in those three verses. I understand why Thomas Goodwin spent 500 pages talking about Ephesians 2. But the good news for us comes in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, pardoning mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. With verses 1 to 3 in mind, God's pardoning mercy becomes so much more appealing. The fact that God is rich in mercy to even pardon our secret sins becomes a great treasure. And now that God is rich in mercy and loved us with a great love, we can begin to grasp the magnitude of his gift for us in Christ and in raising us to new life in Christ. Yet some of you might be thinking, well, God showed me mercy when I 
came to Christ, but he hasn't shown me much mercy since I came to Christ because you've gone through a lot of hard things. Maybe mistreated, maybe misunderstood, maybe betrayed by the one person you should have been able to trust, maybe abandoned, maybe taken advantage of, maybe you will carry pain with you for the rest of your life that may not be able to be healed. And if we look at our lives for evidence of God's mercy, we might conclude it's not there. But Ortland offers this wise counsel. He writes, to you, I say that the evidence of Christ's mercy towards you is not your life, but his life. Christ was mistreated and misunderstood, betrayed and abandoned in your place. And if God sent his own son to walk through the valley of condemnation, rejection, and hell, then you can trust him as you walk through your own values, valleys on the way to heaven. Not to minimize hard times, but to recognize Christ's enduring perseverance for us and the great mercy of God it purchased for us. So, the main point of this passage is God mercifully raises the walking dead to new life with Christ. And the question is, how will we respond to that? And some of you here today, or maybe watching online, might still be among the walking dead. And if you are, you don't have to remain there. It's hard for us, but all we have to do is receive what God has for us. Receive Christ as your Savior. And through your faith, God will rescue you and make you alive again in Christ and raise you up with Christ. And you will begin the journey of being spiritually alive while you're also physically alive. So we first need to receive Christ as our Savior and then we need to rely on Christ to abandon the ways of death and to grow in the ways of life. And I'm depending on Comer again for these, but I think he does a great job of laying out a battle plan. How do we actually do this? Abandon the ways of death and grow in the ways of life. Well, we have to take on these three enemies. So first of all, we need to fight the devil by practicing the spiritual disciplines laid down by Jesus, like silence and solitude, prayer and scripture. And then when we do that, we are more able to discern the lies of the devil because we are steeped in the truth of scripture and of God's word. And then we need to fight the flesh by feeding our spirits and starving our flesh through fasting and confession of sin. And Jesus taught these habits and practices. And Comer writes, these grow, this grows willpower muscles and opens our minds and bodies to the power of the Holy Spirit. So instead of indulging our flesh, we fast, we starve it, and instead we feed our spirits through fasting, through confession of sins one to another so that we might be healed. And then third, we fight the world by gathering with the church, like we're doing right now. And we need to gather with others who have joined in this struggle against the world, 
and its ways. And we need to see others who are resisting the devil and his lies. We need to, the encouragement of others in our battles against our flesh. So we need to gather with the church like we are today on Sundays and gather in smaller communities or groups or at home or one-on-one throughout the week. And then we begin to leave behind the ways of death and learn the ways of life. So how is God calling you to respond today? Which one of those three, maybe, do you need to really focus on or reprioritize in your life? Why don't you come and talk to the Lord right now about that? And Lord Jesus, you know exactly where we are. As you look across this room and those who are joining us online, you see into the depths of our souls. You know those who are the spiritually dead and maybe think that they're Christians. And if there is anyone like that in this gathering today, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open, you would open the eyes of their soul to this reality. And if if you, if God, the Spirit has revealed to you that you're spiritually dead, He's reaching out to you right now. And I want to invite you to receive Christ as your Savior for the first time by calling out to Him. Lord, rescue me. Lord, I need you as my Savior and my Lord. And then there are others of us who um, in some way need to fight, take up the fight, whether it be fighting against the devil and his lies. And Spirit, will you unveil any lies that we have been believing maybe in our lives? Or we need to fight our flesh with more vigor through fasting and confession, or we need to fight the world and stop excusing our lack of gathering with other believers because we need one another for encouragement. And we thank you, Lord, for inspiring Paul to write this passage. Stark, blunt, straight to the point, and yet exactly what the doctor ordered if we want to live. So help us to respond, Lord. Spirit, work in our lives. Help us to spur one another on to be a people that embraces living with Christ. Amen.